0: morning. And if you would take a look at the back of your bulletin or in your Bible, one short verse to read this morning as we begin in Isaiah 12 verse 2. So you look at the back of your bulletin there or find Isaiah 12 verse 2. We'll all read together and then open with a word of prayer. All right, ready? Isaiah 12:2. Let's all read together. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Lord, we are grateful to come before you this morning and to express our thanks, our joy, our, our love for you, and it is rooted in the grace that you have displayed toward us. Uh, the mercy that you have laid upon our hearts and our minds. And so this morning, Lord, as we come before you and we look at your word, as we sing, as we pray, as even just the time and the moments that we have to share together and fellowship and uh, other believers, others that you have redeemed, may we rejoice in you this morning, rejoice in your strength, rejoice in your sovereignty and to rejoice in your presence that you are God, that you are always present and with us. And we thank you for that. As we look to your word this morning, may we learn about our own lives, our own struggles, our own faults even, and uh, see them in the light of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his grace. And we pray for uh, those that can't be with us today, that they would be encouraged, that our whole church body would be encouraged by your word today in some uh, shape or fashion that Uh, Our words to them, even calls and texts this week would be an encouragement to them. And may you encourage us as your people, not just to feel better or um, not just to grow or be centered towards self, but that as a church body, we would be moved by your word to then reach out to the world around us and to follow you as we seek to bring others to Christ. We praise you for your goodness and we thank you for your love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Morning, if you would, take your Bible turn to the book of Matthew, chapter number 14. Matthew, chapter 14. And as you find your place there, and you can also find your bulletin this morning, just to make note of a few things that are coming up in the life and ministry of our church. And as you find your place, both of those, Matthew 14, in your bulletin, I'll read you a note this morning. It says, Pastor James and Landmark family, on behalf of my mother and my family, I want to express a heartfelt thank you for the flowers, cards, visits, and prayers that so many of you were faithful to send cards over the last nine months. It says they literally filled a storage, large storage tub. And it says, speaking about Margaret Watson, said she had some wonderful visits even in her last few days. And along the way, many of you reached out to let us know you were praying. I can't thank you enough. My mom loved her landmark family, and so do I. And it's sign, Love in Christ, from Valerie Cusera and her family. And we continue to pray for them in the home going of uh, Margaret. I was thinking about that last verse this morning. When with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see. And she has something that we do not yet. And we're thankful for that. That we can trust the Lord for it this morning. You see, there in your bulletin, the next few weeks we have our final uh, church membership class. Our final lesson of that this evening. That's a church-wide class that we've been uh, doing, walking through what it means to be a member of a church, but particularly our church and uh, some of the core facets of who we are as a people. And I've been going through that for the last few weeks and. If you haven't been a part of that, I hope that you'll come tonight as we kind of wrap it up, and we'll tell you how you can listen to it. It's something we want to offer to prospective members in the future as well, but uh, just praying about our responsibility and our opportunity as church members uh, in the coming days. You see, this weekend, uh, this next weekend, a couple different things. On Saturday at 9 o'clock in the morning, we'll have a, uh, a breakfast, a men's breakfast, with some time we'll spend in prayer and uh, devotionally, talk about some things that we're going to be doing as men to serve our church and how we can serve our church uh, in the upcoming weeks and months and some things that we'd like to start. Uh, It says that you can wear your favorite football team shirt if you'd like to. If you have one, whether they play next weekend or not, you can wear it, all right? And then uh, next Sunday morning, we're going to be having a Lord's Supper service followed by a church-wide fellowship. Uh, I've tried to put on to church schedule for the next year. We're going to try to have the Lord's Supper every six to eight weeks or so, depending on the time of the year and how it breaks down. And, you know, as I study studying through scripture, as you read the examples of the Lord's Supper throughout uh, the New Testament, uh, quite often they take part in the Lord's Supper while they're having a meal. And so we're not going to do that while we have our fellowship meal next week, but we're going to have the Lord's Supper together and then follow a scriptural, not command, but an example that's given to us. And we're going to spend some time in fellowship around the meal and thanking the Lord for that. And we'll have an early afternoon service uh, as well. And then uh, you see the next week on the 19th, we'll start our uh, adult Bible groups back up uh, at that particular week. All right, look if you would in Matthew chapter number 14. Matthew 14. (coughs) Look, if you would, at verse 22. It says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship (coughs) and go before him unto the other side. And while he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when evening was come, he was there alone. If it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. <clears throat> and when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had known, had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched uh, were made perfectly whole. I would like to do something a little different this morning, Bob. I'm going to throw you off. Can you pull up that last song for us again on the screen? And in fact, I'm going to pull up the words here. It's such a good song. You know, God created the uh, human voice, in my opinion, to be the best instrument in the world. It's better than anything else that man has created. The other ones are beautiful. He gave us that opportunity as well. Um, but the human voice is the best. So I want to sing that a cappella this morning. If you would, do it with me so that I'm not alone in trying to do it myself. We're going to sing the first, the fourth, and the last verse. I'm going to skip around a little bit this morning if I can find my way to it. But I'm going to try to lead you in it. How about that? And um, if you like me, you sing along with me. If you don't like me, then you'll leave me to do it by myself, which won't be a great thing for you this morning. But I want you to sing along. Let's pull that first verse up. I want you to think about it as we sing it this morning. It says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And second, we'll sing the fourth verse. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden at Calvary and suffered and died alone. And then when with the ransom and glory his face I at last shall see, twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. And then let's declare it. Let's lift it up this morning and sing aloud and sing proud of what the Savior has done in us and for us this morning. And we'll start on verse number 1. Ready? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nestle. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned. Good, ready? How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song. Beautiful. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love. On that fourth verse, he took my sins. He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how Song shall ever be. How marvelous! How <coughs> is my Good. Love and finally, gloriously ready. When with the ransomed in glory, his face, his face I shall see. yes will be our joy through the ages to sing of his love. Sing it out, lift it up, oh, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior. you believe that this morning and you praise the lord for his love you think about the passage we just read we'll pray and joy's going to sing one final song for us in just a moment you think about the passage we just read that the lord sends his disciples into a storm and yet they fear and uh, we can point the finger and say oh they shouldn't have done that but we would have feared too and uh, peter jumps out on the water and we think that that's great but then he doubts and he falls and we think oh he shouldn't do that but we would have done that too In fact, we probably did it this week, didn't we? I was still doing it right now, aren't we? I was thinking about a song this week, and you know, that's interesting, it's probably, I don't know if it's a torment to be married to the pastor or not, but Joy was scheduled to sing this week. I said, why don't you sing this song? And uh, then I sent her like a pre-manuscript of my sermon as to why, and thinking about Peter, and thinking about the song she's going to sing, but I said, this week's, Sermon is about Peter. This is the text I sent to her, and she just responded with a heart. So so I think that she said, uh, I said, this week Peter's faith fails while he's out on the water with Christ, but love still bids him welcome. And after his pride and after his ambition, his desire for glory, after his hatred for others, after Peter's disdain for others because of their nationality, their ages, their abilities, overconfidence in himself after his proclamation that he would never fail the Lord, after his betrayal, after his quitting in the midst of his self-loathing, Jesus keeps bidding him come. And so we want to rejoice in that the Lord in his love continues to bid us welcome. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that you teach us from it today. We are humbled by your spirit and we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to worship you, to sing of Your love for us. Not just our love for You, but we love You because You first loved us. And we thank You for it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And In Matthew 14, He does not cast out His own. And if you're a Christian this morning, regardless of the week, the month, the days that you have had, love still bids you welcome. Because those that he loves, those that he has saved, are not cast out. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then Jesus' love still bids you welcome. He calls you to come to him by faith, to trust in him, to follow, to repent of sin, and to trust in him by his grace. And he will not cast you out. And um, we're going to see that this morning as we look at Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Again, a very familiar passage to us, most likely. After the last few weeks of walking through some of the different parables of Jesus and some of the different accounts of Jesus, the beheading of John the Baptist and Herod's response to it, the last two weeks we have spoken of two very significant miracles of Christ. And I say significant, not that the other ones are insignificant, but significant in their popularity, in their common knowledge. There are people that know n- not much of Scripture at all, but they know that the, the Jesus that's spoken in the Bible is supposed to have walked on water. They, they know this, maybe aside from the claim of the resurrection of Christ, this, this may be the most well-known of the miracles. And the truth is, it, it, there's something fascinating about it, there's something that draws our attention to it, that... Someone defied the physics of very nature and he walked on the water. We all wish that we could do that. In fact, I remember as being... child, my grandparents had a pool, and we tried to run off the deck and take as many steps across the pool as we could, like we were running on the water. It never went more than like one. Uh, it just, <laughs> poof, just kind of went in. And we, we, we try, we like to imagine that people have created magic tricks based around that, and illusions to try to show that they're walking on the water. It's just something in our minds that we say, Jesus walked on water. And even the, the account behind his walking on the water is familiar to us. That the, the disciples were in a boat and there was a storm and he walked on the water and that Peter got out and walked with him and then the storm calmed. We, we know the details of this particular account of this miracle of Christ. But this morning I want to just draw our attention to the spirit of the Savior toward his people. We've been walking through Matthew, and particularly the last two chapters. Matthew 13 is the parables where Jesus sort of gives a clarification of the things he'd been teaching. Not because what he was teaching was confusing, but because the people he was teaching to were still confused anyway. And so he tries to clarify much of what he'd been teaching to those that believed in him. And in clarifying them through the parables as those end, we're presented in the end of 13 and all the way through chapter 14, we're given these eight different people or eight different times that Jesus is responded to, that people respond Well what, what do they think and believe about Jesus? And so far we've had different ones. We've had um, unbelief by the the people that lived even in his home town. We've had fear and superstition that Herod had toward him. We've had intrigue where the the big huge crowd comes out and they listen to Jesus but they're still trying to figure it out and did you notice that last week we're not really given a response you have these 5,000 people that are fed by a miracle of God but then there's there's no real response written for us at least in the book of Matthew And I think that's because Matthew's drawing our attention to what happens next, that though Jesus just works this mighty miracle, in the midst of that his disciples then immediately face a struggle and their response to it. We actually do know how the 5,000 responded. There's other gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 and other places in scripture, it tells us that the, the, the multitude just kept trying to follow him around and trying to go everywhere and they come to him and they call him master and they start to speak to him and he says, Jesus says to them whoa, 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 you're only following me because I fed you with the loaves and the fishes and you want me to do it again. And they keep talking to him about the food. Give us a sign. And it says in the Old Testament, you're going to feed the nations. And actually, there's a response recorded in John. It says that they he feeds the five thousand. And it says that the multitude sought to take him by force and make him their king. That was their response. Herod serves up John the Baptist's head on a plate. Jesus serves us free food. Which one do we want as our king? And so they try to make Jesus the king and that's where we start this morning in verse number 22. I think that's why there's this immediacy of uh, Jesus, this urgency. Notice in verse 22, straightway, that means immediately Jesus constrained. It didn't mean He tied them up, but literally it means He compelled them, He urged them. The word means to necessitate by force, threat, persuasion, or plea. He is Compelling them, get in the boat and leave now. I'm going to go back and send away the multitudes. I'm going to deal with the 5,000 people. You all need to go. It doesn't give us a lot of reason as to why that is. It doesn't give us really much reason of the disciples' attitude, other than the fact that it says that Jesus is having to compel them, He's having to make them go. Of course, they just saw 5,000 people fed. Who would want to leave that situation? Especially when Jesus is also going to be staying. But Jesus says, you've got to get in the boat and you've got to go now. Jesus knows it's not his time to become king. He's dealing with this in a different way. And so the disciples are faced with this. They they get to be a part of it. He feeds 5,000 people. Who distributed the food? The twelve apostles, they get to be a part of it. They get to experience the graciousness, the thanks, the amazement, the awe that all of those people had in the, in the crowd that day. Whoa, wow, you're one of Jesus' apostles, you get to do this. I mean, they probably feel awesome about this situation. And then they get to receive twelve baskets, these extra blessings that are received afterwards, the leftovers that are left after it, Jesus has made food. They get to be a part of the miracle. There's leftover food, in fact, and now Jesus is saying, you need to go away, and I'm not going to be with you physically. You've got to get in a boat and go. Now, that wouldn't have been too terrifying for them as individual men. A good majority of them are fishermen, and I want you to get the right picture in your mind this morning. This is not like a sea or an ocean storm, like you'd see out in the Bering Strait, with massive freighters that are almost tipping over and turning to and fro. And the ship is not like a—it's not like a sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred, eighteen big sail ship with massive uh, sails from each side and cannons shooting out the side. This is a small boat, probably about the length of one of our rows of seats, somewhere between twenty and forty feet, depending on how it was built usually uh, seven to ten feet wide at the most. Uh, There sometimes would be a small little deck that they could kind of crawl under and store things. It's not a huge boat. And they're in the Sea of Galilee, which is known for large storms, but not like hurricane-type storms. What it was mainly known for is extreme wind that would kind of come out of the valleys and the mountains. And so what you have when it says that they tried to sail to the other side you have these men rowing the boat. Another portion of Scripture tells us that they were toiling and rowing, and they're going from a place that we think is near Bethsaida, and they're coming down, kind of, if you have a map, you can look at it later, the t- really just the top corner of the Sea of Galilee. They're not going all the way straight across the middle. In fact, the route they would have taken never would have taken them very far from the shore at all if they'd have been able to keep the course that they probably wanted. They're headed to, John says, they were headed to Capernaum, which is only just a few miles away up the shore. And yet these men are rowing and they head into this. It doesn't actually tell us in this account that it's a storm. It tells us that the waves are tossing the boat and they're not really getting anywhere because the wind is directly against them. You have this headwind that is facing them. So I want you to notice this morning the struggle that they're in. We mentioned that, uh, we'll we'll look at number one, the events that led to their struggle. They just finished this blessing, as we mentioned, and now Jesus is going alone to pray. So why is Jesus doing that? Because that's what he was trying to do when he ended up feeding the 5,000. If you look back in verse 13, when Jesus heard, talking about the killing, the murder of John the Baptist, his cousin, when he heard of it, Departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. He went to be alone, to grieve, to pray, whatever it is that he was going to do. That's why he left in the first place. Then this massive crowd comes. He has compassion on them, teaches them, feeds them, sends them away. And yet, notice this he does not get distracted from the desire to spend time alone with his father. He is not distracted by the busyness of life, the grandeur of the miracles, or the moment and circumstance of the storm. He's not so distracted that he still does not have a deep desire to go be alone with his Father. You see that over and over throughout Scripture and over and over throughout Jesus' life. I want you to notice when we talk about it and we talk about the difficulty of the struggle. Let's just walk through the passage again very quickly. And just mention it. Really, we're not going to be uncovering some detail that you've never seen here. I just want us to draw attention to what it is that's happening. So just read along kind of with me as we go. It says straightway that Jesus constrained them. We said immediately he compels them. He gets them into a ship. He says, you're going to go over to the other side, and I'm going to send the multitudes away, which he does. But then he leaves. It says after the multitudes went away... That he went up into a mountain apart by himself to pray. Notice this, when evening was come, he was there alone. I want you to get the time of this circumstance in your mind for a moment. Why did the disciples, remember the feeding of the 5,000? The disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we need to send them home. we got to send them away. Do you remember why? There was no food, but do you remember the other reason? He says, the day's over. The the time is coming to an end. The sun is going to be setting soon. We've got to feed these people. So he feeds them probably around the mid-evening to late-evening time period, sends them away as it is getting dark. So by the time the disciples get in the boat, they're not getting in in the middle of the day. They're getting in and heading into darkness and night. So it says the ship was in the midst of the sea is what it says in verse Number 24, the literal wording there, it says it was many stadia. Stadia is a Jewish measurement or a, a, a term of measurement about 600 feet long. It says they were many of those measurements away from land. So, literally, the middle of the sea. They're not near anything. The Sea of Galilee is only about eight miles wide throughout most of it, anyway. But remember, just cutting across the top point. But now they're apart from him, they're in the middle of the sea. Notice it says, they're tossed with waves. The wind is blowing directly against them, which when you're rowing is a very annoying thing. Notice in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them. We don't keep track of the night in that way. We, you know, day shift, graveyard shift, you know, we kind of refer to things that way. Fourth watch of the night is about 3 to 6 a.m. It's the last watch of the night In fact, John goes on to tell us that the sun was almost coming up. It was almost dawn. So I want you to do the math here for a moment, okay? Do do the math with me. Oh, we've got to do math. Yes, do the math. Because I want you to see what the disciples experience. They're rowing a boat into the wind at Jesus' command, being tossed to and fro. Now, different from the other storm in which Jesus calms the storm where it says they're terrified of the storm. They wake him up and say, don't you care about us? We're dying. It does not say that the disciples were terrified, in this case, by the storm. Notice, in a moment, we're going to see what they're terrified of. It's when Jesus comes walking to them. So they're rowing. What you see in this is not as much a threat of death, necessarily. It's not, it may have been, but it's not given to us here in Scripture in that way. What you have is a group of men who got in a boat around sunset and around sunrise in fact, John tells us exactly how far they had gone. It was between three and a quarter to three and three quarter miles. Not quite four miles. Their entire trip was supposed to probably be about six miles, depending on the route that they took across the top of the sea. They got in a boat around sunset. They're in a boat around sunrise. And they've gone about three and a half miles. Do the math there. They could have walked. In fact, I Google mapped it last night. It was fun. I like to just look at Israel on Google Maps. It's pretty cool. And so you, you type in Bethsaida. There's not a town of Bethsaida anymore, but there's Bethsaida Junction, which is sort of near where the city would have been. And then you link it to Capernaum. And it says it takes you about an hour and a half to walk there if you just walk. Now, if you take a slow pace, old roads, not as many direct paths, let's say it takes you three hours. To walk there six miles in three hours that's a decent clip but it's not overly fast it's just kind of a walking pace yet these men have been in a boat between somewhere between eight and ten hours rowing and they have not gone very far they are struggling they are not able to do what they're trying to do they're fighting against it contrary contrary to what it is that they're trying to accomplish then notice what happens it says that Jesus went to them walking on the sea. He goes to them. Mark tells us that he saw them toiling and rowing, is how it phrases it. That Jesus saw their struggle, and then he goes to them. So he goes up in a mountain to pray. He say, well, what was he doing? I think maybe he just decided he was going to walk there. He could go on however he wanted to do, but he's walking there. I don't know, in his providence, in his omniscience, in his sovereignty, and in his greatness, he sees the disciples that they are just rowing, rowing, trying to do the thing that he had told them to do, which was a very simple task, go across the sea. They're trying to do it, but they're stopped, and they can't make it. Jesus sees their struggle, and he goes to them. And then notice, now how do they respond? When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. The word literally means they were tormented they're terrified, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Now I have heard a whole message once preached on that particular verse saying, the disciples didn't know their master, and so they didn't recognize him, and so they feared we should be able to know Jesus, and if you're with him every day in his word, then you'll recognize him and you won't fear. That is a good thought. But I think they didn't recognize him. Here's my, here's my really great thought. I don't think it's that they didn't recognize him because they weren't being faithful to him. They didn't know him. They didn't love him. I don't think it's any of that. They were in a storm. And they couldn't see him. There's wind. There's waves. There's maybe rain. There's things splashing. And in the midst of it, they don't recognize the help that is coming from them. So their difficult circumstance masks the help that is coming to them from the Lord. And they fear And in actuality, they do not fear their trouble and their circumstance. They actually fear God's answer to it. They fear what Jesus is there to do. They don't know who he is. They don't recognize it. And you see where this is going. I don't even have to apply this much. You probably hear it as we walk through it. That there's times in our own lives where we struggle, and in the midst of our struggle, we don't even fear our circumstance as much as we simply fear what in the world is God doing. Verse 27, straightway, that means immediately. Jesus did not toy with them. He did not stand on the sea. They, they, they thought he was a ghost. They thought he was a spirit. The word is literally phantasma or phantom. They're looking out at him, and Jesus isn't in the background going, Boo, you know, trying to just play with them. It doesn't do that. He senses their fear. Notice his spirit toward them. He senses their fear, and immediately he tries to calm it with his words. So he senses what they're feeling inside, that they fear him after a long night of struggle. And he does not toy and he does not scold, but rather he speaks words of comfort and hope. And he says, it is I, be of good cheer, be courageous, be brave. In fact, notice that little middle phrase. I love this. He says, it is I. That is the present tense of just existing. First person present tense of existing. Another way to phrase it is I am. That's the only words that he says says, Be of courage. I am. Don't be afraid. You recognize the wording. And then notice in verse 28, Peter answered him, Good Peter, and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. That's interesting. We'll stop here for just a moment. Mark gives us this account of walking on the water by Jesus, John gives us the account of walking on the water by Jesus, Matthew gives us something that the other two don't. Mark and John say nothing about Peter walking on the water. There's a lot of people that guess as to why that is. Some people tease and say John had a little rivalry going on with Peter. They always like to go back and forth a little bit, and so he didn't include that. Mark, the, the gospel of Mark, is thought to be based very much on Peter's account of things. Mark is somebody that traveled and assisted Peter, and so it's supposed to be they, they believe that it is Peter's account of the telling of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. And so he maybe wouldn't include it about himself. Maybe out of pride. I don't want to be humiliated in this. Or maybe out of humility. Like, I did this, but the focus should be on Jesus. Either way, Matthew gives us that Peter walks on the water as well. So he says to the Lord, if it's you, and this is not him saying like a test, like, oh, if it's really you, this is more a a, a statement of confidence, of his presence. Lord, if it's you, I'm going to come to you. And Peter, there's this beauty in Peter recognizing that his safety was not in the calming of the storm or Jesus entering the boat, but in Peter drawing close to the presence of Jesus himself. And the same is true for us. That the safety of our lives and the joy and the growth of our lives is not simply in the storm subsiding and us getting and accomplishing what Jesus asks us to do, but it is in the presence of Jesus himself. And so Peter heads out toward him. He gets out. But notice, and Jesus says to him, come. Beautiful word. Come to me, all you that labor. Come unto me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Follow me. And here he says to Peter, yes, come with me. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. So what do you see here? He, He Says, come. And notice that Peter steps out beyond not just his talk. He says, if it's you, let me come to you. And then Jesus says, okay, come on. And Peter's not like, well, you know, that was, I really, what I really meant was, like, you come to me. No, he doesn't do that. He gets out and he walks himself. Jesus speaking to him gave him the confidence to follow. And yet, we do see that Peter, when he saw the strength of the wind, began to sink. And in sinking, notice this. He immediately cries out for help. He was afraid, beginning to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. You know, we give, we give Peter a lot of jabs for this. Oh, he had great doubt. He had big problems. Jesus said, O oh, ye of little faith, if we will just have confidence and not focus, this is how this is normally sometimes taught or preached, don't focus on the storm, focus on the Savior. That's a good truth. But it's often very difficult, isn't it? And he says to Peter here, all we say about Peter here, he gets out of the boat, he follows, and when he gets distracted, he begins to sink. We kind of jaw on him a little bit for that. But notice that Peter, though he begins to sink, does not lose sight of where his hope actually lies. Because in the moment that he begins to fail and sink, he cries out for Jesus. And notice Jesus' response. We kind of think only about Jesus' words here Oh, ye a little faith, where did thou doubt? Jesus didn't say that until they're in the boat. Notice what Jesus does first. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, Well, you have little faith. And then he gets him into the boat, takes him across. So, what do you see there? Jesus looks at his disciples, he senses their fear, and immediately he calms them with his words. Then Peter gets out and tries to attempt something even greater and come into the presence of Jesus. But in that, he fails because he focuses on the circumstances of life. And in realizing his failure, he calls out for Christ's help. And immediately, Jesus saves and gives him that help. It's not that Jesus wants to destroy and hurt our lives, that he's standing over us, dangling little things that we can never quite grasp onto giving us instruction when we obey. He slaps us across the back of the neck or the head. There are consequences to sin, yes. But there is a Savior that is much greater than our sin and its consequences. And so what Jesus does here for His disciples, you fear, hear my words. You fail, take my hand. Do you see what Jesus is offering us in this story in this account of what he is doing for his disciples and then we have this phrase in verse 31 oh thou of little faith it's interesting the word those five words you have there oh thou of little faith in greek it's one word it just it's, it's just one title it's sort of like a name you call somebody it's just little faith it's like jesus is addressing him as this name little faith he says then he asks him the question why did you doubt And so when Jesus speaking to him identifies Peter's heart, or he assesses Peter's heart, he identifies his doubt, his problem, that he's uncertain. He says, why did you doubt? The word there for doubt literally means kind of double, meaning why did you go two ways? Why did you do two things there? Following and coming to me, but also trying to focus on the storm. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And Jesus says to him, you have a little faith, and so you split that. And, and, and you tried to go two directions with that, and, and you failed. Jesus is not rebuking in, an, in a merciless way, in an embarrassing and a humiliating way. In fact, I want you to think about it this way. It was not that if Peter had great faith that would have made him do more things. It's not the way that it works. He still walked on the water with little faith. Jesus still saved him with little faith. And aren't you glad this morning that it is not the greatness of your faith by which God decides how He is going to work in your life, but it is the greatness of His goodness and His love toward us. We face, sometimes, within the will of God, our own situations, our own problems. So We've seen events that lead to the struggle. We've seen the difficulty of their struggle. We've seen how God brought His presence into their struggle. We saw Peter's faith toward Christ and in His focus, on the storm, and now if you will, you have on the back of your notes, there's some application. I want to draw this to a close as we wrap up, and I want us to think about just a few things. I want you to think about this. How do we apply this to our own lives? Before we do, well, let's just finish the rest of the passage. It's interesting. When Jesus gets in the ship, the wind stops. He doesn't stand up to say this time and give a great command, it just stops. It fades. It goes away. When Jesus' presence in our life doesn't mean that there's going to be an absence of trouble, but it does mean that our relationship with Him outlasts the trouble that comes. Uh, and I want you to sense that and feel that and understand that in your own life. You have struggle. You have doubt. You have grief. You have pain. You have sin. You have turmoil. You have anxiety. You have depression. You have discouragement. You have fear. God's relationship with you will outlast all of those things. So Jesus gets in the boat. A storm comes to an end. It says, and then they, then they were coming to the ship. They worshiped him, saying, of a truth thou art the Son of God, that remakes, brings them, invokes a response of worship. When they were gone over, they came into this other land, the land of Gennesaret. is just south of Capernaum. It's interesting they didn't even necessarily get to where they were targeted to go in the first place. But it didn't matter because Jesus was with them. And when the men of the place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country roundabout, brought all that were diseased, and he besought, them, besought him that he might only touch to him of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. So you have kind of this beautiful picture of people excited about Christ and what he can do and bringing those that they love but that are ill or that are sick, bringing them to him. It's a kind of a picture of us bringing others to Christ as well. But I want us to focus this morning on what what Matthew gives us that's a little different than the other gospel accounts, particularly Peter's reaction and then the response to him. And so we'll do that and wrap up. Notice, within the will of God, it does rain. Think about that for a moment. Why were they in the boat? Why were they in the storm, if you call it that? Why were they going the direction they were going? Why were they headed the way that they were? Why were the waves crashing against them? Why were they exhausted after 10 hours of rowing when they probably could have made it in three hours of walking? Why were they in that situation? Because Jesus put them there. Because he tells them, get in this boat and go that direction. I'll meet with you later. And so it is proof you, you cannot judge the will of God for your life based on the difficulty of your circumstance. It's not judged by that. It's not based on that. You're facing hardship, turmoil, financial issues, illness, struggle. Those are not always, typically I would say that they're not most of the time statements of God's judgment on your life, but rather they are opportunities that God has brought into your life to deepen your experience with Him. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, and yet He places them into that circumstance anyway. And within the will of God, It rains. The wind blows. It's stormy. You see there, the trial could often come unexpectedly and invade our lives in a significant way. And yet, in the strange province of adversity, God gives the opportunity to deepen their experience with Him. What do they end up doing? They end up worshiping Him. They didn't even do that when He fed the 5,000. doesn't say the disciples did that. He gives them all bread. They're a part of the miracle. They're excited, but it never says they bowed down and worshipped Him. Yet He frees them from their struggle and He comes to them in their trial and that invokes worship because they grow and they know Him. Notice, as we go, it says, it wasn't pleasant, but it came with a purpose. Our adversities are often God's opportunities to increase our faith. Our trials are often the occasions of God's grace. I don't don't know where most of you are this morning. I know where a few of you are I know different members I know different members that we have that aren't here today that are struggling with illness sickness <laughs> a few people have just had just small illness for week after week after week and that is taxing some of our members that have bigger struggles right now with their health and, and they're not here and that's taxing others that are having issues within family or trials and struggle that's sometimes the difficulty of a pastor you don't know where everybody is you don't know everyone's struggles and trials Your heart hurts for those that you do know. And yet all we can do is point ourselves to Scripture and to God's Word to encourage ourselves in Christ. Because I don't know exactly where you are today. But I promise that whatever difficulty life has brought, this is not some sort of self-help message. It is a turn to Jesus and run message. It is a gospel-centered message in that once you have trusted Him by faith, He does not let you go. He will not cast you out. Do not judge His love for you based on the difficulty of your circumstances, but trust Him and follow Him and you will be in a deeper way able to worship Him. When the storm does go away, whenever that may be, there's no guarantee. Notice, sometimes when we are confused in life, We often fear the Savior more than our actual dangers. We fear what God is doing. We're confused in life because of a circumstance. There's three storms that are actually faced here in the passage. There's a circumstantial storm, like the actual wind and the rain. They had no level of control. They were in God's will, but out of control. Then there's an internal storm in their emotions, they were terrified of the instability, they were terrified of what they did not know, but then there's this also, there's this theological storm, you got a spiritual problem, which says, and we've all had that, where we've all questioned God, why are we here, what are you doing, do you, like the other time they were in the storm, do you not care, don't you care, aren't you awake, and so in this case, the first storm, they asked Jesus, don't you care? They doubted his care for them. In this storm and situation, they doubt his presence. They say, he's not here. Where is he? And they don't recognize him when he comes. And They ponder the alternatives. They ponder the what if. Can you imagine them sitting there rowing 10 hours in? I know what I'd be saying. Like, let me out. I'm walking. Like, like, I'm walking. I don't know if the wind had blown them far enough away from shore that they couldn't do that or not. But they're just thinking through all the what ifs. Jesus put us in this boat. Now the storm's blowing the other way. Now I have all these problems. I'm exhausted. Peter smells horrible. Mark, or you know, you got these other disciples over here, Philip, and they're arguing. I'm so tired of this. I'm soaking wet. I'm cold. All this could have been dealt with if we'd just walked there. We'd have been there hours ago. But God does not call us to ask what ifs. He calls us to follow him. And sometimes focusing on our fear and our struggle leads us nowhere but confusion and terror. Jesus' message throughout Scripture, God's message throughout Scripture, is do not be afraid. It doesn't mean that life circumstances won't be difficult and that we won't focus or look at them sometimes. I heard one preacher say, glance at the problem, then gaze at the Savior. He says this way to Abraham, He says, do not be afraid. To Isaac, do not be afraid. To Jacob, do not be afraid. To Moses, don't be afraid, Moses. You stand on holy ground, Joshua. Don't be afraid. Gideon, don't be afraid. Jehoshaphat, don't be afraid. Daniel and his vision, don't be afraid. Mary, you're going to bear the Son of God. Don't be afraid. Joseph, your wife's going to be is going to have a baby. It's going to be the Son of God. Don't be afraid. To the shepherds, the Son of God is coming to your presence. Don't be afraid. To the disciples, over and over throughout his ministry, to John on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus continually speaks to our fear and his message is, do not be afraid. And he doesn't say, don't be afraid. Your problem's not a big deal. He doesn't do that. Have you ever noticed that, that sometimes that's how we try to, we don't mean it mean, but we undermine people's struggle. We hear about someone's struggle. We try to undermine it by saying, well, it's making them look at it in a different way. It's not as big of a deal as you think it is. The problem with that mindset is we still are turning their focus to their problem. They see a big problem, and we're trying to convince them it's not as big as it really is, but their eyes are still on the problem. But rather what Jesus says is, do not be afraid, look to the Lord your God. And so wherever you are this morning, whatever your struggle is, whatever your problem is, I cannot promise you that it will be over tomorrow, but I can promise you that God will be with you tomorrow. I cannot promise you that it will feel great, that doctors will say good things, that it's going to turn out well that doesn't always happen but Jesus is always there and my relationship with him is much greater than good circumstances and you see in the midst of our failure and our helpfulness helplessness there's only one true hope that we can run and is to call out to Christ sometimes Jesus brings us into something and in, makes himself known to us and when he does we should respond with worship faith great faith is not doing great things the greatness of your faith is not judged by the measure of your feeling great faith is great because it is fixed on a great savior faith is focusing on christ over circumstance And even when Peter was faithless, Christ remained faithful. So let me take you there this morning. We'll be done. Because you may be struggling this morning with whatever it is. And I know it feels like maybe for 35 minutes we've just talked about ambiguous things and problems and trials and struggles. And so what are you talking about? I don't know. The Holy Spirit knows what's going on in your life. The Holy Spirit knows where you've doubted. The Holy Spirit knows where you've struggled. The Holy Spirit knows where you've continually gone back and clung to sin and can't seem to ungrip and let go. The Holy Spirit knows what He's doing in your life and God and His Word are speaking to it. Comfort, peace, and do not be afraid. And so I can't make the exact application this morning to whatever's going on in your life because it is your life. But I promise you that if you have been faithless this week Christ has remained faithful. Though we deny Him, He cannot deny Himself. Peter took His eyes off Christ, but Christ did not take His eyes off of Peter. Peter lost sight of Jesus, but Jesus never lost sight of Him. Jesus saves, not your faith. Your faith does not redeem you. Jesus does. Your faith does not satisfy God's wrath. Jesus does. Your faith does not cleanse you from sin. Jesus does. And so, what does it say? You can justify by say, faith. We're saved by faith. Faith is seeing Christ over circumstance. Faith is acknowledging Jesus is greater than my sin. Faith is acknowledging I cannot do this, but Jesus can. Faith acknowledges I am miserable and this stinks and life hurts but i trust god that however long this lasts 10 years 10 days 10 minutes 80 years to the end of my life i trust that what he's told me is true and that i can follow and trust him forever and though peter had little faith jesus performed a great salvation so ask yourself this morning who have you been calling on in your moment of trouble Peter did not try to swim first and then ask for help. The moment he started going down, he trusted and sought for Jesus. Sometimes we try to figure out life on our own, do everything on our own, figure it all out. And then if there's an emergency, hit the little red button. Jesus, please come help. But in actuality, he's walking beside the boat the whole time. The amazement is not just that He stood on water that was liquid. He created that. I'm not discounting. It's an amazing miracle. The amazing part of this account is not that He walked on liquid. That's a great thing. But it didn't do anything in the disciples' lives. The amazing thing is that in the midst of their struggle and their trial and their efforts that were failing, Jesus continually stayed with them. And He loved them. And he carried them through. And we ask him to do the same this morning for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your love. You're good. You're gracious. You're holy and righteous. Omnipotent, almighty, all-knowing, all-wise. Matchless, creator, sustainer. You are the provider of all things, the giver of every good gift, the breather of life. And yet you have bent low to us. That Jesus, as you came as a man in the form of a servant, you were made in the likeness of men that you suffered what we suffer. And you did it perfectly without sin so that we could stand before God justified, not by our own efforts not by our own will but by the sacrifice of jesus for us and so we ask that in the storms in the difficult moments of life when we struggle when we feel like i've just been rowing all night long and i really haven't gotten anywhere that you would come along beside us that you'd speak your words of comfort to us you would tell us do not be afraid and that we would listen And we ask not that we would be able to just do great things like walk on water, but that we would be able to see a great God. And that we would treasure and love you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand if you would, please. We're going to sing a verse of invitation as we do whatever the Lord's doing in your heart and life. If it's as a Christian this morning, carrying your trouble, casting your cares on him or if it is returning to Him because you've been afar off. If if you're not a Christian this morning, here in these services, anytime, if you can come during an invitation, we'll have somebody take you aside and explain how you can know for sure that you're saved, that redeemed by God's Word. Find one of us after the service. The Lord is working in your heart and life. Let Him do that work even now. Let's sing this together and allow the Lord to continue to work in us for Jesus this morning and though we don't understand what it is that we face we understand and we trust that he guides and directs every part of our life that our focus should be on him our relationship with him above all other things and he takes care of the rest we have one order of church business this morning and I just want to announce that to you uh, Tim, I'm not even going to make you sit down, I'll just make everybody else wave, or make you wave at uh, Tim and Dina Siegler, they're seated back here in the corner, you just wave at us for a moment, and uh, they have come this morning by letter from a church of like faith in Webowee, Alabama, did I say that right? Webowee, Webowee Alabama, and uh, they have moved to this area and they want to join our church, and they come into the body, local body of Christ here, and they've been... Attending for a few weeks, and I've had an opportunity to speak to them a a couple different times, and then again this morning, and share a great testimony of God's redemption and His faithfulness uh, in their lives. And so they're coming by letter from a church of like faith, baptized and saved, and we're thankful for that. And if you're excited to bring them into the member of our church, let me know by saying amen. amen. And we're thankful for that. I know we have a few others coming in the next few weeks. We're thankful for that as well. Let's be dismissed in prayer, and then be back tonight and uh, seeking the Lord's will in our lives as members of our church. Rob, would you close in prayer, and we'll be dismissed.